0: The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. So you guys picked a great celebration to come to. Uh, a couple really uh, exciting things going on. Ciel is here, and then Advent. This is the, uh, the kickoff Sunday for Advent, and that term may be unfamiliar to some of you. For some of you, it may have been a part of your practice already. You may have gone to a church before where uh, they celebrated Advent or maybe you did it with your family. Uh, but for many of you, um, it, it, you may have never celebrated it. We've never celebrated it here at Mountain Park. So officially, we're kicking off Advent and what Advent means is coming or arrived. And it is a four-week celebration that takes place leading up to Christmas Eve and the birth of our Savior. And each week has a theme, hope, peace, joy, love, and Christ. And each week comes with a song or songs that fit. So CL just sang, oh come, O come, Emmanuel. And I'm gonna be speaking about hope today. And those songs are intertwined. Uh, and so there'll be music of the season. And every week comes with stories, stories that tell about the birth of Christ, the greatest story ever told. Um, so, to help, if uh, many of you have families with small children, um, to help you guys share an Advent at home, uh, along with us, the, the home team has put together an Advent kit. Uh, and it comes with everything you need to celebrate Advent. You've got a wreath here, you've got four candles, and there'll be a fifth one placed on Christmas Eve. Each week, the home team will publish a new card that tells you how to lead your family in the celebration of Advent. Everything's right there on the card. It's a great way for you to follow along with us. Uh, We announced this first in first service. We had many people go out. These are available for purchase at home team for $5. And uh, so it's a great way to tie in what we're doing here with Advent with what you're doing at home. This week, I'm gonna speak to you guys about hope. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Lord, (laughs) Lord, our hope is in you. Lord, your presence and your power, the gift that you have given us through your Son, your nearness to us. Lord, come now. Come now, and as, as we celebrate Advent, take each of these days each of these stories, and let us open our hearts and our minds and to to hear them as if for the first time. Amen. So hope is a word that may have slightly changed its meaning over time. Words do that. Some words do. Some words don't, like splendiferous. I don't know what it means, but it'll never change its meaning. We just don't use it enough. But other words change their meaning, So for example, the word cool. Cool used to refer to temperature. It was, oh, if you ask somebody for a cool drink of water, that was a drink of water that wasn't too hot, that wasn't warm, that wasn't too cold. It was cool. Very rarely do we use it with temperature anymore, right? Uh, You're in the store and you say, wow, those are really cool shoes. Now, did you mean that they were not hot or too cold? No, they were cool. Or you see a car down the street, man, that is a cool car. So even though we could still use it in reference to temperature, it's highly underused in that way, right? It's come to mean something more akin to style or something that, uh, that's, that, uh, that is attractive. Uh, hope has kind of shifted, too. I'll give you an example. This last week, something remarkable happened, something that has not happened in all of recorded human history. Very few weeks have an event this momentous where you can say, this has never, ever happened before. Does anybody know what the event was? Think hard. Happened Wednesday at 6. The lottery, thank you for shouting that out. Powerball, $580 million, over half a billion dollars was given away to two people, one lucky one here in Arizona. That was, that was incredible, right? So now, normally we don't talk about lottery in church for a lot of reasons, but church is also a place where you should be honest and so, I'm, I want by a show of hands, be brave for me now. First service was brave. How many of you bought a $2 ticket on the chance of winning $580 million? Yes! All right, you can put your hands down. Now, I'm sure, how many of you, did all of you hope you would win? Of course you did, right? And there is what I mean, the word hope. Because, you see, when you buy a lottery ticket for Powerball, particularly this lottery, your chances of winning... We're one in 175 million. That's a number you can't even wrap your head around, right? I'll give you a for instance. That's like, it, 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 you have a better chance of leaving here today and getting hit by lightning 50 times in a row. <laughs> I'm serious, it's like, you walk out of the building and all of a sudden, zit, and then you go and you almost get to your car and zit, and that goes 48 more times. That's how likely you were to win the lottery. So that is more, if we say we hope we would win, what we really mean is we wish we would win. Because the biblical term for hope, uh, the biblical definition that we see is different than that, right? Hope, as it's used in scripture, means a strong and confident expectation. A wish doesn't change your actions. Like you might have done something to, uh, to, to help you win the lottery, but it didn't change your actions. You, made it, you might have you know, uh, had a lucky something that you did, right? But it didn't change your actions. If you have a strong expectant hope, it will change your actions. It will change everything that you do. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should change everything we do. The people of Israel hoped for a coming Messiah. The prophecy that was just read from Isaiah 61 is all about the coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote that prophecy 700 years before the birth of Jesus, 700 years. He was in the middle of about a thousand years of separation, the people of Israel being separated from their God. They had fallen from great heights. They had had incredible kings. They had rebuilt the temple. They had been led by Moses from Egypt. They had an incredible story, but they followed after the ways of the world and they fell, and they were actually conquered and taken into captivity, r- removed from their homeland three times in a thousand years. Three times. Three times. We can't even imagine that. We've only been here in America slightly over 200 years, and, and we've, we've been free that time. Imagine that all of us, that our nation was held captive and taken somewhere and enslaved, and not for a little while but for generation after generation after generation. That captivity drove the people of Israel back to God. They clung to these prophecies of a coming Messiah. They wanted to be delivered. They had seen God do it before. The prophets had prophesied that it would happen again, and that was what they were waiting for. That was their hope for the coming Messiah. So Isaiah 61 is actually repeated uh, in Scripture a little later. We're going to look today at Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. But before I do that, I want to set up what's going on before, uh, before this passage. Jesus had been born and had grown to be in his in his 30s, maybe late 20s at this point. And we don't know a lot about that period of time between his birth and right now. Uh, Luke actually begins uh, begins here at the the start of Jesus' public ministry. And many of us, when we start a new job or a new career or something, we may do some things differently. We may go get a haircut. We might buy a blue suit. We might shine our shoes. We want to make a good first impression. Jesus, upon beginning his public ministry, walked out into the wilderness for 30 days without food to be near his God because he knew what he was about to embark on was the most important thing in all of humanity. He went out and fasted for 30 days and in the desert he was tempted by the devil. The devil tried to convince him to turn stones into bread or to use his divinity to provide for himself. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. He took him to a high mountain and he said, look, you can have all the kingdoms of this land. I'm in charge of them. They're mine to give. You can have them. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that either. Then he tried to get him to test his God. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. After 30 days and being tempted by Satan himself, Jesus came back out of the desert. Full of the Holy Spirit and ready to begin his ministry. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 4. 14, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, As he stood up to read the scroll, the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So at this moment, he is essentially declaring that he is the coming Messiah. Make no mistake, everybody in that room got the point of what he was saying. But I don't think they imagined that he was about to embark on the way he would lead the rest of his life. They thought he was gonna be a conquering king. They were still oppressed right now, although in their homeland, they were occupied by Rome. And many that followed Jesus, even some of the disciples, expected that he was gathering people for overthrowing the government. So that was their expectation. So when they read those words of the prophet Isaiah, it was about him establishing yet another kingdom of man. But that was never his intention. His intention was to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts and minds of men. Not another kingdom of man. Not another kingdom conquering king, not another man, but instead to break down the barriers and restore God's people directly to him so that they could hear from God directly. So not another kingdom of man, but instead to establish the kingdom of God in the minds and the hearts of men from leaving the synagogue, he immediately went and began to heal people. He began to preach the good news. At one point, shortly here after this, this, uh, this scripture, they're, um, they're trying, they're following him in wherever he goes, and they don't want him to go. And he goes, look, you have got to let me get to the next town. That's part of what I'm doing here. I've got to preach the good news, and it's beyond this town. So he started to fulfill those scriptures. Then there are other scriptures. Right away, flip the page over, great, incredible uh, thing happened. He went to another town and he found he was approached by a leper, completely covered with leprosy. Now, that isn't just a sickness in this culture, uh, much like in ours today, but even worse, you would be ostracized. Nobody would come near you. There were laws against people getting near you. If they got too near you, they would have to go through a ritual cleansing. So this man was alone. He walked up to Jesus, and he said, if, if, if you will, I know I can be clean. And he goes, I will. And instantly, the leprosy was gone. He went into another synagogue to teach, and a man that was possessed of an evil spirit started to yell... We know you, Jesus of Nazareth, you're the son of God. Come to destroy us all. Jesus told him to be quiet. He told the leper not to tell anyone about what was going on. He was trying to go quietly about his business, fulfilling the prophecy that he had just quoted from from Isaiah 61. But as the days passed, it became clear that this ball was already rolling downhill and gathering speed. It would end up that in some places, 5,000 men and whoever else was with them were in the wilderness and Jesus actually fed them because he couldn't send them home. It was too late. As the end of his life on earth approached, it became clear to the people that followed him that what their expectations was of a Messiah was not going to be what Jesus had in mind. Over the course of his life, birth, life, death, and resurrection, over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled. At the very end of his life, with the last breath, he called out to God and said, it is finished. And in that very moment, the earth shook, the sun was blocked out, and the veil in the temple was torn from the ceiling to the floor. In that moment, he had done it. He had defeated death. He had defeated sin, and he had restored God to his people directly. No longer would you need to hear from an intermediary. You could speak to God directly. And that's really the big difference, right? The people of Israel, they hoped for a coming Messiah, Our hope is in a risen king that sits at the right hand of God the Father who has conquered sin and death for us. That is a hope that should change every moment of our lives. That is a hope that should make everything different. We're in the holiday season, and before, if I'd have walked up to you before this message today and said, hey, what do you hope for Christmas? You probably would have jumped to something under the tree or a visit or a meal or all those wonderful things. But I'll ask you again, in light of the message and having heard this word today, what do you hope for Christmas? I'm gonna invite the band back and we're gonna have a time of response. But what do you hope for Christmas? The risen king is here. The presence of God is here in this room. He's here to do what Isaiah prophesied he would do. He's still in that same business. He's setting captives free. He's opening blind eyes to see. He's caring for us. He's near When Jesus heals the paralytic, he doesn't say, get up and walk. And Luke, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the paralytic was set free. Jesus is here doing all that work now, today. That's our hope. Our hope is in him. So as we close today, there's several different ways you can respond. You can sit and listen and worship. You can come down here in front. Maybe you want to Come down here and kneel and pray by yourself. Nobody will bother you. There are staff members around the edges of the room to pray with you if you need somebody to talk to. You You can light a candle or leave something at the foot of the cross. And also in the back, there's communion. Taking communion by yourself or with your family is a great way to start the Advent season, so I would encourage you, if you feel so inclined, uh, to do that as well. But ask yourself as you come forward, as you respond, what's your hope for Christmas? What's your hope for this Christmas? My hope for you is that the Christmas story, the greatest story ever told, a story of the triumph of good over evil, a story that has angels and and, uh, and incredible characters and the birth of a savior and the delivering of all the peoples of the world, that that story would become new and fresh for you this year through our celebration of Advent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the greatest gift of all. Thank you that your son was born, that we might be saved, that we might be joined to you, that we might be restored. Glorious Lord, in this moment, come and be near to us. Heal. Make whole. Deliver.